Welcome to What I Wish I Knew by Dental Head Start, your weekly mentoring session thanks to cpdjunkie.com.au. Nobody likes to be in pain and as dentists, we have patients walking in through the door every day with toothaches and it's our job to help them out. But every so often, we encounter the hot angry pulp which just doesn't want to settle no matter what we do to try and anesthetize it. Welcome back to What I Wish I Knew. My name's Erica, and we are so lucky to be joined by Dr. Mehdi Rahimi, a specialist endodontist, the president of the Australian Society of Endodontists, and someone who has an absolute passion for teaching. Dr. Mehdi will be joining us over a three-part series where we talk about all the most common endo problems that we might encounter and how to manage them. In this episode, he talks us through what exactly a hot pulp is and the protocol he's developed to manage it. But we start off this segment with a very memorable story he has of a hot, angry pulp that he just could not tame. The story I have um, is my dad who came to me with um, a situation where I recommended uh, the dentist, a friend of mine, places a crown on his tooth. And I think the crown might have been a bit high and my dad's a a bruxa. Um, And it was actually a gold crown, so it wasn't like a super hard object, but it was in the mouth for a short period and he ended up with intense hot and cold sensitivity and... He came in and was always, you know, most often you'll see the lower molars um, with a hot pulp or difficulty in this type of situation because also anatomically it's a lot sometimes harder to, to anesthetize the, the lower molar region. You may get the anatomy wrong. You might um, get your landmarks for an inferior viola block wrong. So that's when I saw my dad <laughs> and it was a 3-6. And the, the tooth appeared a little higher than, you know, also I reckon it was a bit mobile because it was in hyperfunction. And I knew I have to commence endo because all the signs um, were indicative of he's unable to cope for too long. Uh, you know, he's been trying to cope for a few nights and he couldn't sleep. And, you know, he had severe pain, basically throbbing, aching pain, hot and cold sensitive. So um, I attempted to give him a a block. Um, So I gave him the first block. And as soon as I uh, usually like, you know, sometimes I put um, a little bit of cold air in the region because he was also very sensitive to cold as well. And he could feel it. And I gave him a second block and he could still feel it. (laughs) So this is a number of years back when I hadn't um, quite looked into this topic. And I kind of knew that it's always the most often the low molars. The other areas with infiltration are more predictable. So anyway, probably about block number five and trying to go higher up, you know, and giving, yeah, and giving, um, I was was wary of how much anesthetic I'm giving him. He does have a heart condition, so I didn't want to give him that much. I kept mixing the drugs. I I pretty much... um, with with infiltrations, I um, I said, "Listen, Dad, I've got to get you out of pain. I've got to get into this tooth." And so, anyway, he's jumping for about five minutes. I'm trying to, you know, I just couldn't. I just I just called it quits. I stopped. I was like, "Well, you know, it's not going to work. We'll have to sedate him." So that was the that that was that was probably the worst um, 
most stressful because when you treat, you know, your family as well, I don't want to cause them pain. And for about five, 10 minutes, nothing's working. And I'm trying to gradually get in through a gold crown. I don't want to like, you know, do an intrapulpal. Um, and, it, you know, that's when I thought, well, enough is enough. I've given him, oh, he's suffering enough. Um, and then, of course, we sedated him and everything was very easy when he was sedated. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So that was a story of just not being able to anesthetize him and knowing he's quite inflamed. Um, so that was where I thought, well, how do I target this? And I, I read up on a bit of literature and there is a, a, a little bit of literature on how to manage the hot pulp. Um, one of the guys in Australia, um, Anthony Martin or Tony Martin, he's an old endodontist that's retired, but he did write in the Australian Endodontic Journal a number of years back in the 80s, actually, on the topic of hot pulp and how he manages it. Um, and uh, he went through a, a system so one of the reasons why you have a hot fault, obviously, is inflamed tissue. Um, the C fibers, even in the steak where there's not much blood supply to the, uh, to the neural tissues, um, are still quite active in the inflamed state. And then on those C fibers, there are these channels, um, the tetrodotoxin or TTX-resistant channels where you need four times as much volume of anesthetic to actually anesthetize them. And so they're a lot more higher in number during the inflamed state. And uh, this is why sometimes this happens, where the inflamed tissue is harder to anesthetize. Um, and why, why is it most often the lower region? Because the lower region is a blind region. You're giving your anesthetic, but you don't know where you're putting your anesthetic. It's not as simple as just infiltrate right next to the tooth. And even in the upper region, um, the palatal canal, for example, is more difficult to anesthetize because it's further away from the buckle when you give a buckle infiltration. Um, or it might be more vascular. Um, and, and often it remains... I suppose the blood vessels in it remain more inflamed and active or um, the rest of the canals may necrotize quicker. Um, so so there's those sort of things as well. But most often, as I said, lower molars because of an anatomical reasons. So either the patient's anatomy is different and a normal block doesn't work. So now I have a um, way I do it, a system. I start off by giving, and, and this is pretty much for every lower molar case. I give the local anesthetic as a block and then I give the local anesthetic with scandinest, which is non-adrenaline in an area which is more vascular, the gal gates. So often I'll do the normal block and then I'll do the gal gates, um, which is obviously higher up next to the upper seven, goes into a different area where you have to aspirate to make sure you don't get into a vessel. And I, I would use Scandinous just in case I get it near a vessel and patient gets palpitations. So once I've done the gal gates, I reckon in about 95% of cases, um, because of uh, the anesthetic being higher, you've also given more volume of anesthetic. And together with the increased volume, I think you've got it. You've, you've, you've hit it in the nail and it should work. If it doesn't work, then this is when I move on to giving buccal infiltrations. And I always actually, as a habit, give the three anesthetics before I start. So it's the normal block, the gal gates as a routine, just in case I, I treat every lower molar as <laughs> if it's inflamed, it's not going to anesthetize. And in case I miss 
you know, giving the block, like I missed the area, I've given the gal gates too. So not only I've given more volume, but just in case I missed the first one, I've got the second one in there. And then I also give a buckle infiltration with artocaine. And so now what I've done is I've given, for example, lignocaine with adrenaline. I've given scandinous galgate. I've given artocaine buckle infiltration. So in effect, I've mixed the drugs. And often you talk to pharmacists, um, they always say, when you mix the drug, they're more effective. And in local anesthesia, that's definitely the case. Even when you have topical creams made, you mix drugs. Um, and the same thing happens with giving a local in an inflamed tissue. So once I've done the buccal infiltration, then that's when I start accessing the tooth. And if the patient's still getting signs and symptoms, I might go back and supplement. So I may supplement even with a rubber dam with an extra volume an extra block, and it's usually in that case it could also, it could still be a higher up galgates because I know I've got more chance. Um, I might even supplement with giving some intra ligamentary injections. Um, um, this definitely in the cases where you've got to extract the tooth, um, they're quite effective. In a, in a case where you've got the pulpal tissue, probably not as effective, but I just give some intraligamentary around the tooth anyway under pressure just in case I might be able to, you know, change it. The last resort, you've, you've, you've waited as well. You've given it time. If it doesn't work, then I increase my nitrous oxide. So I often have nitrous on those patients to give them a state of euphoria to reduce their perception of pain. And once I've increased or gone higher up nitrous, where they might be slightly uh, out of it, if you like, they're slightly sed it's, a, it's a slight sedation effect. Um, and it's very quick, quick acting. Um, then that's when I go in and give my intrapulpal under back pressure. Um, some people in these cases um, will, you, will give an intraosseous. Um, I've seen it be given. I've watched uh, Memutor Abinijad in his um, Principle and Practice of Endonics textbook. If you look at the videos on it, uh, it looks so barbaric. Because you, you, you <laughs> you're know, drilling into bone, right? You're drilling into bone with a slow speed, and then you're injecting it. I rather, you know, go with um, higher nitrous, and if I have to, just I take, you know, we we just uh, one or two seconds, um, and intrapopal's done, and the patient's um, fully anesthetized. Then, yeah. So, so remember volume. Remember giving it time. Remember mixing the drugs. Don't forget your gal gates. You've got to read up on it and you've got to remember your landmarks for it. It's a little bit more tricky if you're not uh, sure because it's not as straightforward, as I say, inferior alveolar block. You must aspirate. Pretty much um, my second year as a new graduate um, endodontist. So I'd, I'd already done, of course, dentistry and then I trained as an endodontist and I came out and I think it might have been 2010. Uh, when I saw my dad with this um, situation where he had a restoration, it was high, and it, uh, you know he's he's he is a bruxer, he has cracks, and then something was really badly stirred up, probably also high bite or was quite inflamed, so it came up. So that's when it was um, during pretty much my post grad years. You'd see patients, you 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 know you see various flare-ups maybe at times when you're treating them, but um, I hadn't encountered um, an emergency situation like this because a lot of the post-grad cases we get, 
the community dentist or the student has already started. So you're not you're less likely. I mean, we did see patients in um, emergency as well. Like you know, we did um, emergencies um, as a part time job some nights. Um, I maybe encountered a few like that. But my most memorable is, of course, somebody who you care for so much, and you definitely don't want to cause them pain. And then you know, I you know, I don't know. I didn't know what to do. I gave him five blocks. <laughs> so I didn't do um, back then. I wasn't doing gal gates um, as well. I, I, I wasn't. I was too worried about it because of um, you know, getting giving an intravascular type thing, and it was a bit more um, tricky to give him. I hadn't practiced it enough, so I just kept giving the normal block after block after block. And I'm pretty sure he developed trismus after. So I'd give an intramuscular, <laughs> and 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 not only that, I'll be honest, he also ended up with some bruising as well. So you know, I really, I really, yeah, I felt so bad. I was like, "Damn it, man, why did this happen?" I better go and read up on it. <laughs> but at the same time, it's both a blessing and a curse because you care so much for him. But at the same time, I guess you're you were also glad that it was your dad. Right? Yeah, yeah, I guess he's, he's forgiving. You know, he's. <laughs> He still thinks his son is the best, you know, so, you know, that's, that's okay then. <laughs> it's that time of year again. Before June 30, we have to renew our indemnity insurance. And when I look for an insurer, I'm looking for someone who's going to be there when I need their help. They're going to act fast and they're going to be by my side so I can practice with confidence. I get all of that from Dental Protection Limited. What I love about them is that they're more than just an insurer. They're actually here to help us, to give us content and support us with medical legal situations and most importantly, help us avoid these situations. The content they produce is the best content out there from an insurer like them. Renewal notices are out in May. To make sure you get all of these added benefits, sign up by June 30. I can say from personal experience, when you need help, you'll be glad you're with Dental Protection Limited. Thank you, Dental Protection Limited, for supporting me in my career and the Dental Head Start podcast. It obviously inspired you to do all these readings. And then how did you go about, um, because you've now very much mastered your technique and I really like it how you were saying, you know, go in with your, go in with your blog, go in with the Galgates and then the buckle infiltration with the three different anesthetics. But then was this something that you, like this protocol, was it read in a textbook or through your readings or was it something that you developed yourself over the years by trial and error? Like how yeah. did you build up to, guess, having this now very set protocol that you use? Yeah, so that plan on giving the normal local, um, then giving the Galgates, then giving um, supplementaries and giving time was actually published by Tony Martin, as I said, a retired Australian endodontist. Um, it was in the AEJ a number of years back. So I read that, but then, you know, maybe that was uh, the the old times. So now I, I supplemented or I... I made modifications to that particular protocol. So, for instance, I mixed the drugs. Um, they talk about Galgates causing, you know, intravascular, you know, um, more likely to end, you end up with palpitations and intravascular injection, which which can which can actually obviously be dangerous in a in a, in a patient with um, heart disease, especially <laughs> like uh, where where they might be um, at more risk of developing um, myocardial infarct or uh, having a heart attack from the, you know, giving adrenaline. So I, I, I sort of read up on it. I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to give this anesthetic that's recommended. I'm going to choose Scandinest, which doesn't have 
any adrenaline in case um, I, I, I do give it intravascular. Um, so things such as that, um, as well as adding nitrous oxide, which <clears throat> they call us the gentle endodontic, you know, um, so apart from the soft handshake I might have, um, I want to even make, you know, I won't even, I want, I want to even make that experience of an inflamed tissue as more as comfortable as possible. So even with my dad, like, you know, I gave him the five blocks, but I even back then was using nitrous oxide. And I really think nitrous oxide um, really does re- reduce, gives a state of euphoria and it reduces your perception of pain. Um, you're able to tolerate it a lot better. So, I mean, things such as that was never written anywhere, but I combined it with the basic protocol. Absolutely. I guess what I wanted to ask then is, you know, these are this is what you do as a specialist endodontist with, you know, you're the you're the person that we refer off to when, you know, we can't handle these situations. So, and obviously like you said like having nitrous oxide and having the skill set and experience of delivering at Gal Gates, right? Like that takes experience and takes um, you know, knowledge and and years of practice to develop that. What advice would you give, I guess, to a general dentist or someone earlier on in their career, like a new grad who isn't as confident, like you said, like, okay, we understand the theory, like you said, but we ourselves wouldn't be confident, you know, doing a Gal Gates, um, you know, injection. But we encounter a situation where, you know, the patient's in pain, they're miserable. Do you have any advice on what we can do and like how we can settle the patient before we refer to you perhaps? Yeah, I mean, um, there's a few things. Number one is um, watching um, videos. Uh, I can't I can't stress enough that a lot of what I've learned throughout the years has been watching others. And, of course, a lot of that is available, readily available. So if you type, for example, Gal Gates, I'm sure on Google you'll find a video clip on it. And if you don't find uh, schematic diagrams and video clips on it, then it's best that you, you know, buy the principles and practice of endodontics textbook, because when you buy that textbook, you've got links, you've got, uh, you know, back back in the old days there were CDs, but now there's actually video links to every bit of the textbook where you could just press the button Gal Gates and learn all about it from the anatomy of it and looking at the jaw, the skull, um, all the way to actually administering one you have watched. So once you watch, you obviously from then practice, and uh, and I suppose you'll probably get a few here and there where uh, maybe you're not 100% sure, but eventually you'll get there. So if you want to practice, you can also pick up a jaw or a skull and, and have a good look at it. Um, <clears throat> and, you you know, you, you basically get your armamentarium right, you use the right needle, the light gauge, the light length, all that. And then you just have to, like everything else in dentistry, um, go for it. Like once you've done your basic, you know, assessment of of, of and you've you've studied it, you've you've gone in and you've read about it, or you've 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 watched it enough number of times, then you have to go the next step and try. Because as clinicians, um, we will not be doing everything the same way from day one when we graduate. Or, and we, we, you know, whatever you are right, right now in undergrad, um, Erica, you'll definitely over the p- 
period of time change. And what you were taught, the basic principles might be the same, but you've got to keep yourself up to date. You can't be the laggard where you'll always do whatever restoration with whatever bonding or whatever. You know, some people some people still – I know you, you get taught – placing amalgam fillings at school and i think there's a good place for them but there's lesser of a place um looking at the real world that's <laughs> just changing when when you go to a practice where they don't have amalgam or, or they might have i don't know amalgam that's from gazillions of years ago somewhere in the cupboard where you don't know whether it's expired or not um you, you you're going to have to change you're going to have to practice um there is also Anatomy, I'm sure um, if, you, if you really want to learn more, there is um, the primaries, you know, where they teach you the anatomy again. <laughs> so if you do your, your college exams, um, you, you'll get exposed to plenty of anatomical. You go to the museum and you can learn there and, you know, you, it is, you can further your learning. Um, the, I still remember the anatomy I learned at school was nothing compared to the primaries exams that I sat. I mean, it was like a totally different world. The amount of um, anatomy I learned during that period of time where I sat my um, um, primaries examinations. Mm, absolutely. It's very much if you want to learn it, you just got to get stuck into it and start somewhere and start trying. Yeah, and I think this part of dentistry, it's like if you're going to get out and sometimes you're on your own, I mean, you're in that, you're in that practice in that room by yourself, a mentor's even if your boss is there or your mentor's there, they're not going to be there all the time. You've just got your nurse, your assistant, and you've got you. So sometimes you're in the deep end. You'll have to go the next step. And uh, you do, I think learning beforehand, um, going to as many courses as possible, um, watching as much as you can, watching specialists, watching whatever you have on the net or whatever you see um, that's been already published as textbooks have um, then then after that you're you pretty much have to have a go you got to go the next step and um, try as dentists and dental students we all have difficult days you may experience workplace or training demands that have a direct impact on your physical, emotional, and psychological health and well-being. This is exactly what dental practitioner support is for. It's a completely confidential and independently run service that's funded by the Dental Board of Australia in an effort to support practitioners and dental students right across the country. Sometimes people call just at the end of a long day to debrief, but sometimes they call because there's more challenging things going on. Dental practitioner support is there for you in these times to give proactive advice, help you improve your health and well-being before there are major concerns. We all need a helping hand sometimes and it's okay to ask for help. So if you find you need it, call 1-800-377-700 or visit the website dpsupport.org.au. They have loads of great information to get you started. I just want to pitch another situation to you. I guess, like like you said, you know, obviously it's no excuse to like um, if we want to do something, we should take the steps to learn it so that we improve ourselves and we get better each time, right? But you know, if we're if we do encounter encounter a situation where we're having trouble, like we, a patient has come to us and we've identified that you know it's it's a 
it's a tooth that we can't really manage, but the patient's in excruciating pain and it's something that we think is beyond our scope and we want to refer it to, you know, a specialist or someone with a bit more experience. Is there anything that we can do at this point to perhaps get the patient out of pain if like you know we can't go in we can't anesthetize it we can't extirpate it i know some people mention you know antibiotics and i want to ask yeah. you is there a place for that or what do you think yeah so so antibiotics is not really a common indication in endodontics unless the patient has cellulitis um so if, if and in some circumstances if the patient is medically compromised, um, for, for instance, they may have end-stage cancer. You may, to be on the safe side, uncontrolled diabetic patients that are also having heart disease and things like that. You may prescribe it, but in most cases, you're looking for signs, which is cellulitis, fever, um, and and in those sort of cases, if you prescribe antibiotics, you also have to warn them that if it gets worse... You know, they've got to end up in the hospital on intravenous antibiotics. Um, and when they're in the hospital, I guess people are not as kind. They'll probably extract the tooth, you know. Um, and if uh, we're not talking here hot, pulp, or inflamed. They're just going to numb it, and they've got to grit their teeth together and extract it. Um, so antibiotics in particular, um, I have written, especially after I've performed a procedure. So I've gone in and I've m- instrumented and medicated the root canal system. Patient came in with severe, you know, signs and symptoms, so very symptomatic or swollen. And just in case I prescribed it and I told that patient, um, for instance, imagine, you know, that they're in the rural area or it used to be the COVID-19 era where everybody was closed, right? So in those cases, I said to them, here's the antibiotics. If you have a flare-up, like severe pain, and that flare-up rate is about 3%. Um, We know there's different reasons for the flare-up, and most often it may be bacterial or introduction of some tissue bacterial um, debris outside the root canal system within the periapical tissues because it can happen when you're cleaning, when you're even when you go to length, you can do it. Um, So less often is chemical or physical, um, but we don't know what the reason for it is. So we know this is a 3% category. Um, it's, it's happened. So just in case we write them antibiotics. And I say to them, if you have a flare-up, it's not selling, and you feel it's starting to swell up, so swelling being one sign, please take a course just in case they become cellulitis. Um, the, the, the second thing I prescribe, which you can prescribe prior to referring this patient as an emergency to us. So with these cases, they should be seen within, you know, 24 hours or so because obviously somebody has to actually perform the procedure. Um, Otherwise, they're just going to get worse and worse uh, or they'll end up – some of them do end up even with cellulitis. depends on what the reason for their intense pain is that you can't anesthetize. I mean, sometimes it's inflamed tissue. With the inflamed tissue, you have more time because it'll become – necrosis and there are some articles and papers that suggest um, until it becomes a swelling or cellulitis it'll take time it'll take longer than if you've got a a fully infected root canal system which is fully necrotic then those cases which also have a lesion could become a cellulitis overnight within a few hours Um, the environment's warm 
the bacteria love it. They, they, they are dancing and they're just replicating nonstop until it, you know, the body can't cope with it. So in those cases, again, you can write anti-inflammatories. Uh, you can write other pain relief medications that have got codeine in it. Panadine Fort's one of them, obviously, that's quite commonly prescribed. And you can combine the two or you can have one at night, like the one that gives you drowsiness, like um, the codeine-based one. And you can also give the anti-inflammatories um, every six hours during the day. One of the most effective anti-inflammatories um, that there is some literature on, um, oral surgeons particularly um, prescribe it, is dexamethasone. It's a very strong um, anti-inflammatory and you just give i usually give four milligrams at one every 12 hours for two two days um maximum three days because you don't want to overdo it either and that really reduces the pain and and also reduces the inflammation um neurofen or maxigesic or neuromol we're not going to go into detail of but there are others that you can also prescribe that the pharmacist might recommend and they have a mixture of um like ibuprofen and um, paracetamol such as neurofen uh such as um maxigesic or neuromol and i've been told neuromol is a little bit more effective because it has slightly higher concentration i think it's 200 milligram um Ibuprofen. So prescribing something's okay. Now the last resort is let's say nobody's around, okay, and you're going to be referring, but that person won't see them for ages. That's when you've got to give you anesthetic, and that's when you've got to, you know, have your tools such as nitrous oxide. I hope you have, and you've got to basically tell the patient, look, you know, I've tried my best. I've given you all the supplementals. I've given the time. I've mixed all my drugs, as I said, and you go for it. You you get in, okay, you try to hopefully get into the pulp chamber as quick as you can. Um, and then as soon as you get in there and you've, uh, I, as I said, increased the nitrous, um, as long as you give a good a back pressure, like under back pressure anesthetic, just a few seconds into the pulp chamber is enough because the axons are in the pulp chamber. They're not over the orify of each root canal. Even if you can't find the orify and you don't have time and um, let's say by the time you anesthetize, you ran out of time because, you know, you might be through your lunch break or, you know, it might be a, you might be limited and you might be running late. Then if it's inflamed tissue, if it's bleeding, you would just cut away the axons, which are predominantly, as I said, in the pulp chamber. So you do a full pulpotomy. You don't you don't get into the root canal system because you're going to leave shredded tissue behind. And that's if it's inflamed, it's more painful. You'll have more post-op pain. And there are definitely studies um, on that. So the studies tell us that if you do a full pulpotomy of an inflamed bleeding pulp, you're going to have less pain than if you do shredded partial popectomy. And in those, yeah, and in those cases, yes, you can. This is the first and probably only situation where then I would actually, because I, you didn't have time to go into the canals and instrument and get to the right length. I would have been using say calcium hydroxide as an antibacterial. I'll be then placing say odontopaste, which is an anti-inflammatory. Odontopaste, odontocyte. Yeah. One of those. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of that's like kind the of minimum the last resort. yeah that's resort last resort so you just got to go for it 
time. And most often, once you've given all that anesthetic, I mean, yes, they start to feel it when you're getting more near the pulp um, or the pulp, or the roof of the pulp chamber. But um, you've done enough for them to not hopefully notice it as much. And, and you know, it's it's not comfortable, um, but you also have to know this, that if you don't manage it, they're going to be in agony and uh, there's no one around, no one here to help you. It's either you and you've done your best or, you know, um, if you're going to refer, yes, you could prescribe, um, but I think you've got to be very cautious because people can also just, you know, you just got to warn them if they're going to take antibiotics, which is a placebo at times, if you're going to prescribe it in an inflamed pulp tissue, it's got to do nothing. There's no cellulitis, there's no... And this, but but it's, if, even if it's a placebo and you shouldn't be prescribing it, you don't want them to take a few and then stop and take a few. You want them to strictly finish it because then there's less likelihood they'll develop resistance the next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.